0: Peter and Cornelius are from two very different worlds. Cornelius is a Gentile through and through. And in case you're not familiar with the term, Gentile simply means non-Jewish. Cornelius is definitely not Jewish. He is a Roman centurion from one of the most distinguished and venerable of. But he earned this rank of centurion not through his family ties, but his skill on the battlefield. Cornelius is someone who's really good at killing people, and he's also really good at teaching other people how to kill people. Over the course of his career, he has amassed enough money to purchase several slaves and a home large enough to host himself, his family, slaves, military subordinates, and Friends. And then, on the other hand, we have Peter, a simple fisherman. One whom the author of Acts calls an uneducated and ordinary man. And although he does own his own boat, give him credit for that, he certainly is not wealthy enough to own any slaves. He doesn't come from a distinguished or venerable family. In fact, as far as Rome is concerned, Peter's only claim to fame is being the follower of a recently executed political dissident. These two men are from completely different worlds, and God is about to bring them together. In our text, Cornelius has a vision in which an angel of the Lord tells him to send men to retrieve Peter from Joppa. And as Cornelius' emissaries are approaching the home where Peter is staying, Peter himself is having his own vision, albeit one that is slightly less clear than the one that he just received. So, in Peter's vision, a sheet descends from heaven, covered with creatures of all kinds. Three times, he hears a voice telling him to get up, kill, Three times, Peter refuses. Peter is Jewish. Jewish food laws set clear boundaries on what a Jewish person could and could not eat. Most Jews viewed these laws not as a burden, but as a gift. The categories of clean and unclean formed a set of boundaries that helped define and maintain Jewish identity, which was no easy task under Roman imperial rule. Observing these laws meant that typically Jews and Gentiles did not eat together, not necessarily out of animosity, but simply because it was too hard to keep kosher in a mixed setting. So Peter's refusal to kill and eat is not arbitrary or even stubbornness. Peter is just doing what he thinks God wants him to do. By refusing to kill and eat, Peter is maintaining the boundaries that are central to God's covenant with his people. He's doing the right thing. And yet, every time, Peter's refusal is met with the same statement. What God has made clean you must not call profane. And after the third time, the sheep ascends to heaven, and Peter is left on the roof, confused, and unfortunately still hungry. So what is God up to here? And what does it have to do with us? In his book, The Good Funeral, Thomas Long, a Presbyterian pastor and theologian, writes the following. If you want to know who people are, watch their bodies. They are, finally, where their feet take them, what they do with their hands, the blessings and curses they utter from their mouths, the ways they choose to touch, embrace, and lie with other bodies. If something springs forth within us, it becomes fully meaningful only when it comes to expression in our bodies. And what we perform with our bodies works its way into our inner beings. For a while now, something has been springing forth within Peter. The transgressive spirit of Jesus, his teacher and Lord, has left a mark on him he has gone from a headstrong and impetuous follower to one of the leaders of the early church. In the early chapters of Acts we watch as he travels around to different communities healing those on the margins and speaking truth to power. Peter is starting to look a lot like Jesus. His feet are taking him to the places Jesus would go and his hands are touching the people Jesus would touch. But this line between Jew and Gentile remained one he would not cross. He's doing the Jesus thing, but he's doing it with the people he's supposed to do it with, afraid that he will lose part of himself if he strays too far from the fold into unclean territory. Even though he believes in it, Peter has yet to fully embody the transgressive spirit of Jesus. And a Roman centurion is probably the last person Peter would want to call a sibling in Christ. And yet that is exactly what God intends. When Peter finally arrives at Cornelius' house, he realizes that his vision on the roof was not actually about food at all. It was about people, and what it means to follow a God who is not bound by the limits of our social imaginations. No person, Peter realizes, is unclean. No one is outside the bounds of God's love or God's plan of redemption for the world. The good news of Jesus Christ really is for all people, even the ones we do not want it to be for. And so Peter does something he has never done. He eats with Gentiles. And as they sit at the table and break bread together, talking about who Jesus is and what he has done, the Holy Spirit comes and fills everyone in the room. And eventually, Cornelius and his entire household are baptized, fully initiating them into the body of Christ. Cornelius and Peter, men from two completely different worlds, but God has ushered them both into a new way of life, one where difference is not ignored or erased, but rather becomes a source of creative tension that sparks new possibilities for everyone at the table. And that is what God was up to, both then and now. God wants to usher all of us into that way of life. To mold us into people who can make room for more people at the table, no matter who they are. As Ruthanna B. Hook writes, the question for us is whether we are open to being so radically changed as Peter was. Can we pay attention to the voice of the Spirit even when it is telling us to do something unimaginable, to widen the boundaries of our communities beyond what we are comfortable with, to give and receive hospitality with those who seem much too other for us to consider communion with them. Hook's question reminds me of a story Erica often tells about two college freshmen, Derek and Matthew. Derek was a rising star of the white nationalist movement. The son of a former KKK grand wizard and the godson of David Duke. Matthew was an Orthodox Jew. Derek and Matthew lived across the hall from each other in their freshman year of college. In his first semester, Derek sought to keep his identity and politics a secret from his peers. But eventually, he was out of it. And unsurprisingly, he became the target of some pretty extreme vitriol from his peers. Now in the midst of this, Matthew had a regular practice of hosting Shabbat dinners on Fridays in his normal. And one week, he decided to invite Derek. For more than two years, Derek attended weekly Shabbat dinners with Matthew and his other Jewish friends. And they became friends, good friends, in fact. Their differences created tension, a lot of tension, but it was a creative tension. One which opened Derek's eyes to new possibilities for himself and for the world. Derek eventually wrote an article for the Southern Poverty Law Center denouncing white supremacy publicly. And today he is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Chicago and a vocal anti racist activist. Now, one could say that this story is an extreme example. Surely we aren't all called to have our literal worst enemy over for dinner every week. That's impossible. Maybe, maybe not. I still just can't help but wonder what the world would look like if this story was no longer the extreme. I can't help but wonder what the world would be like if we, God's people, lived as though the Possible were possible. Now, I would like to say that I am doing that right now. I would like to say that I spend my free time eating with my enemies and that my beliefs about love and grace and compassion and justice are perfectly aligned with the way I actually do it. But the truth is that I like you, am in progress. I really do believe in the transgressive, boundary crossing spirit of Jesus, but it is damn hard to live out. Since I haven't had any rooftop visions lately, I suspect that the only way I'm going to get there is through practice. It's probably the only way any of us are going to get there, with practice. Slowly and steadily, we nurture the work of the Spirit within us. Slowly and steadily, we build the muscles necessary to live as Jesus did. So we do things like signing up for coffee buddies so we can meet someone new who isn't quite like us. We try new forms of spiritual practice, like Erica and Evans and Faith, in order to understand what faith feels like in our bodies. We go on a farm retreat, and we make an intentional effort to eat meals and spend our free time with people we don't already know. Through the messiness of and body human relationships, we learn how to put our beliefs about love and grace and compassion and justice into action. When difficulties and tension arise along the way, we embrace that tension as holy, trusting that God is at work in the midst of it, creating new possibilities for us and for the world. With every step, we move closer to living the way Jesus calls us to live. So let us journey together toward a faith that matches the wideness of God's love. Amen.